Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers. It's another Studcast with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. It is the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling. It's 100 years of rich wrestling history. Please welcome the originator of the Studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. We step back into the ring, back into time with the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. What's up, Stud? Hey, man. Uh, just happy to be here. Got old Lightning saddled up. Really, really uh, looking forward to it. Got a heck of a stud cast for people today. Another good one. And uh, real, real happy, uh, like I said, to be here, man. Beautiful day out. And uh, wow, I don't know how things could get any better, man. Man, I'm telling you, you have something on every burner on the stove. You're an entrepreneur. You're you're hosting Studcast, Super Studcast. You're an author, and I gotta ask you. And let's start if we can start out talking a little bit about your horrifying lion, Brutus. He is shocking the literary world. I was reading some of your more than forty five star reviews on Amazon.com. People all over the world are going crazy about Brutus. I mean, is this what you expected, Ron? I mean, obviously as a, as an author, you hope to get a reaction and man, you did. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, as far as uh, did I expect it? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, when you write a first book, Dave, but you know, uh, you don't know what to expect, right? You don't know whether it's good or bad uh, until it gets out there and some people start to read it. Uh, you're kind of just uh, waiting to see what kind of reaction you're going to get. You know, so I, I've been blown away by the number of readers that have sent in reviews. And a lot of people are comparing Brutus to Jaws. I mean, like, and when I read that, I go, whoa, wait a minute, man. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, that's one of the greatest books of all time, I guess, and movies as well. So, you know, I just keep asking myself, you know, how can my first book even be mentioned in the same sentence with Jaws? I remember sitting in the in the theater as a kid and watching Jaws on the big screen for the first time. And I will never forget that movie. And it was an afternoon viewing, like a matinee of Jaws. And it, it's still so vivid today. And that was that was like mid-70s or something. So listen, that's kind of astounding that it's being compared to Jaws. I mean, is it so different? How different is it from most books? Uh, what's the difference? And And then where do you get an idea like this for a book? Well, it's really a different type of story. You know, I never read anything like it. 
and and in some ways it is, I guess, comparable to Jaws. It's just like uh, this this set of Jaws is not in the ocean; it's on land, and it happens to be in the Smoky Mountains. Uh, so you know, there's some Jaws in this one too. But uh, this all started oddly enough, day from a dream, and uh, I was living just outside of Knoxville, right on the edge of the Smoky Mountains National Park, as a matter of fact. And uh, one night I had this dream, and uh, you know. And I and I kept waking up because the dream was scaring me, man. It's like, wow, what in the heck is this all about? And then it's one of those dreams. I don't know if you ever had one where you go back to sleep and the dream continues. It's like wow. it's all over again, right? And uh, so I dreamed all one night about this tremendous story, man. And then I got up the next morning. I went straight downstairs uh, into my home. My computer was down there. And I started doing something I'd never done in my life before. I began to write a book, man. I wow. said, I got to write this book before I forget this dream. So two years later, uh, Brutus was born. You know, it took me two years to write the book. And uh, then I put the book in my dresser drawer for 20 years almost. Didn't do anything with it. And then finally, I pulled it out of the dresser drawer a couple of years ago. And uh, wow. Uh, I went ahead and got it done finally, got it on Amazon. And uh, all of a sudden, man, my, my Brutus is raising hell in that park. It's <laughs> like, like the dream was. Well, listen, it's not just any park. It is it is the most visited national park in the USA. And who knows? I, I don't know how it would rank in the world, but it's got to be phenomenal. The Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And that man, what an amazing plot. A lion, an African lion is on the loose in the park that is just incredible yeah i mean uh you know and, and how it happens is uh maybe even more incredible you know i mean and, but the the great thing about this book and, uh, and if a lot of people have reviewed it uh, say the same thing that this could happen this thing like, could actually happen you know yeah they uh, ship animals and lions and, and you know all types of dangerous animals all around in these in these trucks that are built for it but, uh, you know, in the in my book, these trucks can be destroyed, too. And uh, that's kind of what happens in, in my book. And uh, so, you know, it, it's been an experience for me. I cannot believe all the the different reactions I get from people. But uh, it seems like I've got a pretty decent book. I, I absolutely think so. It's really a, a, an incredibly fascinating ride that you paint. And this picture is just incredible in this book. And for those of you who would like to get one, Amazon.com Brutus novel, B-R-U-T-U-S at Amazon.com. Or, and I, I love the way you can get a get a book this way. Go to TNstud.com, click on Stud Store, and get the personally autographed copy signed by you, Ron. And that just doesn't happen in the literary world very often. So who gave you that idea? Well, you know, Dave, I got a website, right? I mean, I right. sell pictures and I sell... I sell the, you know, T-shirts. I sell uh, five-pack DVDs, and, you know, so I got a book. So, you know, I figure, well, why not give fans the opportunity to just buy the book on my website? And that way, it gives me an opportunity to sign it for them. I mean, in the old days, you'd go out and do the book the book deals and, made, you know, go around promoting your book and signing books for people. But the COVID days has stopped all that. You can't do that anymore. So I figure, you know, if you want to get an autographed copy of it, I can do it for them. And 
And I, I like to write little notes in there for people who don't just autograph it. I send them a little personal note from me about uh, how I appreciate the buying the book and breathing life into my line and, uh, and the whole deal. So, you know, it, it gives me a chance to interact with fans, too, which I love to do that. You are a genius. You have a website. And on the website, you have the stud store. You have a book that's for sale. Wow. You put all that together. Good job, Ron. All right. We're going to be talking about Brutus later in the Studcast, But, Ron, since we rarely talk about it on the Studcast, I wanted to hear from you personally about it. All right. That's awesome. So where are we riding to today? Well, this ride's going to take us, uh, you know, to begin with, uh, obviously, we're going to start out with today's training. And uh, this one's about an owner, and it happens to be me. I did something very different in Southeastern. I changed the day and the starting time of wrestling events in Knoxville during different seasons of the year. Now, I don't know any other territory in the country or in the world that ever did that. And we're going to get deeper in that subject because, uh, you know, this week's studcast, the Knoxville card in this studcast happened to occur on one of those days in which I changed the date from Sunday night, Sunday afternoon, to Friday nights. So we're going to ride into uh, April of 1977 on this one. and. Uh, that month is going to break the all-time attendance record in the largest public building in Knoxville and its Coliseum. We're going to set the all-time sports record in the Coliseum during this month of April 1977. We're just on the cusp of it. Uh, this program today is about the last week in March, but uh, we're really getting close to uh, breaking records in actuality, man. Uh, really, really drawing a huge, huge crowd. So, uh, you know, this program, we have a 601-pound massive man, Haystacks Calhoun, is uh, in for an entire week in Southeastern during this week. Yep, 601 pounds. He's not a little guy, I can tell you that. <laughs> you know, and uh, we'll discuss, obviously, fantastic TV. And in this TV, we got a first-ever interview from the Coliseum dressing room with Ronnie Garvin after he lost. Last week in that uh, loser leave town match, Bob Orton Jr., we're going to get an interview from him before he disappears from Southeastern. You know, then uh, we've got a battle royal on television. I don't know how many people have ever seen that, but we're going to have a battle royal on TV in this program. And we've got another interview in this one from the NWA world champion, Harley Race. And uh, we're going to talk about the March 31st, 1977 card. And uh, we're going to be presenting, obviously, the results of that card and the attendance of the card. The learning tree question today is a really great one, you know, and uh, it's a perfect time for this because it's in the time frame of 1977. This question, it has to do with the split in the Tennessee Territory itself. My grandfather's Roy's original Tennessee Territory, located in Nashville, had they ran it as two territories. And there was a split and a war in Tennessee two years before I have a war in Knoxville. And this is going to be between uh, Jerry Jarrett and Nick Goulas, who were uh, both partners of my granddad. My granddad retired in 1977. And when he did, these two guys never got along and they started a war to see who might be able to control the entire old Tennessee territory of my grandfather. Yeah. So that's going to be one of the questions in the learning tree. All right, so I can't believe how, how good they continue to get every week, Ron. This one sounds like it could be one of the best yet. 
I'm ready to ride, and so is my horse, Macaroni. Where to first, Rod? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I hate to say that every time, man. Here we go. Before we go any further, Dave, you know, obviously, Macaroni must be an Italian horse. You know, why would uh, why would anybody name their horse Macaroni if they weren't Italian? Uh, well, you know, and I got to ask you, Dave, before uh, before I can we go any further, uh, does your horse Macaroni does he eat cheese or does he eat hay? Italian. First of all, he's actually not Italian. He's named after our first president, George Washington. Very importantly, because they have something in common: wooden teeth. Now <laughs> let's let's get on the trail. Let's mosey on down and let's start the storytelling. Well, that's the only way, man, you can make it any worse, man. Okay, so he's got wooden teeth. Well, I hope he don't bite anybody. Man. Yeah, so, me know, too. This the yeah. rainy men, man. So, <laughs> so all right, we're going to jump into the Dave's training, Dave. So uh, this one, you know, like I said a little earlier, was a, it's a very important one because uh, the owners of territories in the old school days they ran their markets, uh, all their markets ran on the same day of the week every single time they ran. Now, occasionally, you might not be able to get a building, and they probably didn't even run at all. So, obviously, this one's going to require us to put on our owner's hat. This is a decision that only an owner can make in the company. And the reason I chose the subject today is the fact that as a territory owner, uh, changing the day of the week, you started in the time and the starting times for the matches in Knoxville. This happened to be the third year in a row. I'm uh, I'm about to do this, okay? And this was rarely done in any territory. In fact, I don't know if it was ever done in any other territory that mm. you switched the events days in one of your major markets and the starting times in that market, and even the building sometimes twice a year. So, you know, uh, we're going to talk about uh, why, you know, and, uh, and did it make sense? So let's begin with the discussion about other territories, you know, so far as days and times and how they chose to operate uh, their major cities. Larger territories obviously had a lot of major markets running weekly, always on the same day every week. So as an example, when you worked in Florida, you worked in Tampa on Tuesday night and on Thursday night you worked in Jacksonville. And uh, that was the schedule every week. You worked uh, the same cities on the same night, and uh, there was hardly ever, if ever, a change, and much less a change for months at a time. So most territories never change that day to a different day of the week, nor did they ever change the starting time, which I did both. And the great thing about territories, they was the fact that they all had a different owner, and nothing was set in stone for territories. Everybody could do whatever they wanted to. Every owner felt free to do what he wanted to in his part of the country, whatever he thought was proper for him and his company. So that being said, I was in control of everything done in Southeastern. You know, the days that cities ran on, how often they ran, the building they ran in, the times they started, and any other changes that I wanted to make. So this today's training will take a close look at Knoxville, not only changing the match day of the week, but also the starting time and even the building uh, on a fairly regular basis. And that happened to be the largest city in my territory. And I didn't do it just once or irregularly. Uh, twice a year, I made a major change of time and schedule and everything. So Knoxville, as far as I know, had always been a Friday night town. 
uh, from its beginning as a professional wrestling city and also used the same traditional starting times for their matches and which was pretty much common across the country and around the world and all the other countries I've wrestled in. 8, 8.30 at night seems to be the time that people wanted to start their matches, and most promoters did this. So in my first year, full year of 1975 in Southeastern, we ran every Friday night at 8.30 every week, except for three winter Coliseum shows on a Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And the only reason that happened was that I had these three dates that I had really great cards that were available, and I wanted to try out the Coliseum. So when I went to the Coliseum, I asked for a Friday night. I didn't want to change my days. You know, I didn't want to change my starting time. And, you know, but the Fridays weren't available. So I went ahead. I could get them on the Coliseum on a Sunday. I took this Coliseum on a Sunday. And rather than pick an 8 or an 8.30 start on a Sunday night, which I thought was awful late for Sunday, I decided I'm going to try 3 o'clock in mid-afternoon. Mm-hmm. And just see how that does since it's a Sunday. Yeah. So during that first year of 1975, we also ran two Friday nights in the Coliseum because we were able to get the traditional Friday night slot. And then we also ran those Friday night slots at 8.30 p.m. We ran one show, 1975, in the Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium because Chilai Park had the fair in town and we couldn't get either the Coliseum nor the park. So in 1976, I got to be very determined to run more events in the Knoxville Coliseum. I also wanted to defy the wintry weather that always had an effect on those crowds as far south as Knoxville was. People couldn't drive in the snow very well. We didn't have a lot of uh, salt trucks and things that people in the north have, and it was difficult. So I decided as an owner of the company, after spending my first winter running my company in 75, I needed to take a big gamble. I needed to uh, move my traditional night, the Friday night, and my starting time of 8.30 to Sunday afternoon and start at 3 p.m. And I felt the reason, the good reason for it, I had two reasons for it. I felt like the driving in the snow and ice would be a lot safer, and it would make fans a lot more comfortable if they did that driving during the day rather than at night. Yeah. Yeah. Also felt like snow and ice. They they melt a lot faster during the day than they melt at night. Mm-hmm. You know, so fans get there and it heats up a little bit. Sun shines outside. They go out and go home, and they you know there's not ice on the road. So at night, that's not the case. So obviously, there was another reason that uh, you know Sunday afternoons there weren't a lot of people working. It wasn't a weekday. It wasn't a Saturday. It's a Sunday afternoon, and a lot more people could go to wrestling than could on a, you know, on a Friday night. Mm-hmm. So luckily, it worked for me. Uh, I guess that's the bottom line. Fans quickly became accustomed to going to Knoxville Wrestling on Sunday afternoons in the winter, and that all started in 1976. So during that first winter, 1976, uh, with a new day and a new starting time, we ran all 11 events on the Sunday afternoon, uh, three of them with Coliseum shows. Uh, and at the end of the winter, crowds were up by more than 150% over the Friday night winter shows of 1975. That's a pretty dramatic uh, increase in the crowd. So something worked there for sure. 
Yeah. In the spring of 1976, I decided to go back to Friday night. And on March 26, 1976, uh, we went back out to Chihuahua Park for in every event that entire summer. And all shows were promoted when we were outdoors, uh, when we went out there, starting even in the spring in um, late March, early April, on that first Friday night, when we moved back to Friday nights from the Sunday afternoons, all those shows were going to be in the amphitheater. The weather was nice, but in case it wasn't, we had a problem, we could go inside. And there was a really good reason for that. Knoxville was really close to the Smoky Mountains. And we mentioned that in the book we just talked about. It's right there on the edge of the Smoky Mountains. And it caused that uh, to be dramatic weather changes in the spring in that particular part of Tennessee. They had different weather than the western side of Tennessee because of the Smoky Mountains. And in April, as an example, you might go outside to have a match. It might be 65 degrees. Uh, you know, or you might come the next Friday night and go outside or want to go outside and there'd be snow on the ground. So, you know, you had to decide whether you're going to be inside or outside. Sometimes they made that decision to last minute. In 1977, we did the same thing as we had done in 76. We changed our events after Friday night. We ran on Christmas night, 1976. The next time we ran, was on a Sunday afternoon in January 2nd of 1977. And then we ran every Sunday for 11 or 12 weeks in a row. Every event that winter, which we talked about in this winter's stud cast, you know, were held at Sunday afternoons and almost all of them in 1977 in the year we're in right now are held in the Coliseum. So we moved Knoxville back to Friday nights on the same week as we had done it the year before 1976. The last week in March, we went back to Friday nights. So, uh, you know, we are in this particular match we're talking about. It's going to run on March the 31st. It is the first Friday night that we're going to run and getting away from our Sunday afternoon. So it was again in Chihuahua Park. But uh, unlike in 1976, when we stayed in the park for the entire summer after we moved, this time we're going there for one week only, and then we're going right back in the Coliseum for nine out of the next 10 Friday nights. Mm. So we're getting those extra dates in the Coliseum. We're finally beginning to get in there more and more. As I said earlier, having the ability to call my own shots and to step out on all the edges, any owner as an owner, if you wanted to, could do, was what I did in 76, and luckily it paid off for me. It was one of the beautiful things about wrestling in those days. As an owner, or even as a wrestler, you were free to choose your own path. You had a huge say in whether you were going to be successful or not. Sadly, come 1988, 10 years later, that's all going to change uh, You know, in the next 10 years, and it's going to change forever. Wow. Okay. So wrestling had to be just great business to be in back in those days. You seem to be doing almost everything right in 1977, Ron. So I guess next we're going to find out about those battle Royals in the last week of 1977, which featured 600 pounder Haystacks Calhoun. Exactly right. You're on it, Dave. I mean, uh, you, 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 macaroni's doing good, man. He's keeping you up real good so far, you know? So, uh, it's quite the unusual week, you know, was ahead for us. Uh, 
for an entire week. Uh, I don't know if anybody else did this either when they got these uh, Andre the Giants or, or Haystacks Calhoun, but uh, we had battle royals in every city we ran during that week, six battle royals. We had record crowds at five out of the six, and the one that wasn't a record crowd was the one that was indoors in Chihuahua Park. Because when we went outdoors, it wasn't nice enough to be in the amphitheater. We might have set another record, but we had to go to the indoor Jacobsville. So that's the only card that we had for that entire week that did not totally sell out. So this card is being held, obviously, uh, the March 31st in Chihuahua Park in the Jacobs buildings. And, uh, you know, it's a shame that we had to be there, but that was what the case was. So... I'm going to go ahead and run the card down for the 31st, uh, Dave. The uh, first match on that card was a babyface match between Mike Stallings and Rip Smith. Uh, Dick Steinborn wrestled Norvell Austin in the second match. Jimmy Golden faced the red-hot Bob Orton Jr., and he was after beating Ronnie Garvin. Garvin being gone, he was certainly red-hot. Uh, Rob and I, we met the Von Steiger brothers in the Southeastern Tag Championship match. Bob Armstrong had himself a return match to try to win back the Southeastern title. He had lost the last week, the week before in Johnson City uh, to the Mongolian Stomper. And then there was a main event, 13 men in it. Uh, it was a 13-man over-the-top rope battle royal. And the featured guy in there weighed 601 pounds, old Haystacks <laughs> himself, right. Calhoun. And uh, the winner was going to get a dollar for every pound that was in the ring. And uh, so with those 13 people and $601 coming for Haystack Calhoun, right. there was $3,801 total given away to the winners of that battle royal. Okay, a very unusual card, especially that prize amount, that $3,801. It's an odd way to do that, wasn't it, Ron? Well, you know, I, I guess it was kind of unusual, you know, but... Uh, uh, you know, and, and this was a kind of unusual event for us. Uh, you know, it wasn't a Coliseum event. And the reason that we brought in Haystacks, because we knew we were going to be in an indoor arena. He was a great draw. He was an extremely famous wrestler all over the world. He, he was he was really got around. And what we wanted to do is, since we were going to be in Chihuahua Park, we wanted to have a battle royal. Anytime you have a big guy like that, you want to put him in a battle royal. And uh, we wanted to save Andre for Coliseum events. So Andre was going to be a bigger star because of Haystacks for us, because we're going to put him in the Coliseum. We're never going to put him in Joe Howie Park. So Haystacks, or a lot of people just call Haystacks Stacks. They call it, the boys all call him Stacks. Right. And he's been around for many years, Dave, and he was respected by everybody. But, you know, at this point, his better days were behind him. He's getting up in age, and, uh, but he was perfect for a battle royal in Chihuahua. All right, so, but tell us, let's go back. What happened on the TV for Saturday the 25th in 1977, March 25th, six days before the Knoxville card? Well, great TV, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier. A couple of things really, really different on this one. Uh, so this one opened day with probably what was really bad news for a whole lot of fans. Uh, Les was at the set for the opening of this one and, uh, by himself. He's usually always sitting there with somebody. And he ran down the cart that was going to be on today, 
this card had a special event on it. And we were going to have a battle royal on TV, which had never been done at Southeastern. We had another Harley race uh, interview in this program. So when Les finished running down the card and the cameras began to back away and they got that tight shot to expand it out, there was that picture of Ronnie Garvin across that big set behind Les uh, in a steel shot. In the Coliseum dressing room, after the match and after he had taken his shower. And on this still shot, he had a little uh, blood coming out of a cut that uh, he got in his loser leave town match that night, that, which had finished about a half hour earlier than when we shot the interview. And uh, it was still dripping a little bit from the cut over his right eye. So Les was sitting beside him in the dressing room for this uh, video. And uh, when Les called for the director to run the video, we're looking at the still shot. Garvin was just about at the point he was dropping his head. When the, and when the still shot turned into an active video, it just went on with the interview. So Les was pretty somber about it, man. And, uh, and strangely for Les, he was almost at a loss for words in this interview. You know, he began by thanking Ronnie for allowing him to talk to him before he left. He told Ronnie he had just watched the match which, you know, all of us watched that match, and uh, that he was very upset with how Ronnie was taken advantage of by three wrestlers. And he didn't get into the discussion of the actual match because we're going to show that actual match a little bit later in this show. So Ronnie finally raised his head to the camera, and, uh, and when he did, he had already had a little slight swelling in his right eye. It was kind of the beginning of a black eye. You, it starts out as a little red spot and a little swell. And then uh, two days later, you got a bona fide black eye. He was far from getting the black eye so far, but you could tell he was going to, his eye was going to get black. And under that cut that he had, you know, and there was suit, it was kind of losing a little blood out of there. A couple of drops of blood trickled down his forehead while he's talking. And uh, so he began himself in a very low tone. He was obviously disappointed with the results of the match. He agreed with Les that he would have had to, had to have beat three men to get the one he wanted gone, Bob Orton Jr., out of Southeastern. He said he was proud, though, of the fact that he had jumped off the top rope, not only Orton's throat during that match, but he also jumped off the top rope in Don Carson's throat. So he apologized to the Southeastern fans for not getting it done, for not winning. And he thanked them for the way that they had accepted him after he had done so many nasty things since he got into Southeastern wrestling. He said he was going to miss this part of the country, talking about the Smoky Mountains area and the uh, eastern side of Tennessee. And, and he said he was going to maybe miss it more than any place he'd ever been since he'd been wrestling in the United States. He said he respected the hardworking people. And the toughness of, of guys like Ron Wright that were born and raised in that part of the country. He had a nice little shot for Ron there. And uh, while he's talking, one of those little blood trickles that dropped off the tip of his nose. And, and he was pretty well through. He didn't have a whole lot to say. He got up to leave and he hugged Les. And, and uh, you know, they got a tight shot. And it, he seemed like he had tears in his eyes. He was about to cry. And he said, uh, you know, I'm going to miss a whole lot of nice people here. And, and then he stood really straight and, you know, he really put the emphasis on what he had to say at the end. He mm -hmm. said, uh, I have a few words for Orton, Mongolian Stomper, and for Carson before I go. 
Okay. So Les asked him, uh, what, what is that, Ronnie? What, what, do, what do you want to say? And he, he looked straight into the camera and he spoke very sternly. And, you know, he said, uh, uh, you three may have beaten me today, but I'm a man of my word and I'm going to be leaving Southeastern tonight. But don't stop looking over your shoulder or behind you because the three of you may see me again. And the camera followed him. He left. He got his bag and he walked out of the dressing room. Camera followed him all the way till he disappeared out the dressing room door. And they uh, underneath the Coliseum, there was a place where wrestlers got to park their cars and he disappeared out that door and he was gone. It was strange, man. Uh, there was absolute silence in the studio during this interview. And uh, I thought the fans, you know, once he said that little thing at the end that you may see me again, I thought that fans might positively react to that statement with at least a small cheer, but there was nothing from that crowd. And I had a, such an astute, we had such an astute young guy that was the director of this show, Bill Kincaid. I've mentioned his names many times. And it, Bill was so sharp. Uh, you know, I'm looking at the camera shot of Les on the set, and Bill has one of the cameramen that's picking up the people sitting in the front row of the studio audience. And Bill instructs the cameraman, he says, to pan away from Les, uh, who was sitting at the, the set, and to pick up close-ups of the front row people that were sitting there for TV. Mm -hmm. And Les kind of picked up on it as soon as he saw the first shot. And uh, he, got, he, he never said anything. And they slowly shot the faces of some of those people. And every one of those people had tears in their eyes. They wow. were in tears. Wow. I mean, uh, I watched that and I was like, in my memory, you know, there were very few moments like that that, that I saw in Southeastern. It was really, really a, a touching moment, you know. Well, and again, it seems to me, and I always go back and I always say that you and Rob pushed so hard on Ronnie Garvin to break away from having a manager because you can do it. You can do these interviews and, and Ron, it sounds like he was just masterful by now with these interviews. It really does. He was, I mean, he went far beyond. He was so good, you know, and then what was wonderful is by the time he, he exits at this point, he has confidence that he can do that. Man. And what a loss to Southeastern. I can't imagine how bad it hurt you to lose a talent as over as Garvin was at this point. So how do you follow that? Well, Dave, you follow that with more heat, my man. More heat. <laughs> more heat. You know, and and, and and that's exactly what happened. Now you got these people crying, and they got the close-up, and all of a sudden, guess who pops out of the dressing room? But Don Carson, the Mongolian Stomper, and Bob Orton Jr. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and, you know, they can't wait to get to the set. And uh, when they came to the set, they were laughing and celebrating. And hey, wow, he's gone. Hot ah, dog. You know, unless Les wasn't expecting it for them to come to the set. They were supposed to go to the ring. And, uh, you know, but uh, they didn't care, you know. And uh, you know, so, so they were great heels, man. All three of those guys. And they knew when to use that pitch for just like the devil himself, man. <laughs> the fans are all down, man. Let's stick a fork in them, man. Let's really get them. So the studio erupted in booze. I mean, they went from crying to just wow. like crazy. So Carson and Ordnance, 
they sat down there, man. They just sat down. They're not supposed to be there. But I saw them coming to the set, and I told <laughs> I told the director, I said, you better get that tape ready with that video ready because I think they're going to ask for it now rather than later in the show. And that's exactly what happened, too. So they were supposed to go to the ring, but instead they end up at the set. I had a feeling that they were going to want to ride that <laughs> that wave of sorrow after that Garvin interview. Well, duh. <laughs> they, they wanted to, they wanted to push that for all they could. You Boy, bet. I was right about it. So yeah. Carson, as always, he never disappointed me, man. He he had to scream above the roar of the studio crowd for the booing like crazy for the director to run that video. <laughs> I want to see how the three of us. Brought this studio to their knees, right? Look at the tears in their eyes out there. He was saying, you know, Garvin's gone, man. What are y'all crying about? So, you know, and boy, the crowd, they, they were mad. They were seriously mad, you know. I really thought we only had one police officer in the TV studio. And I, I kind of thought, boy, I wish we had another cop or two, man. Because I don't know if this crowd's going to sit there and let these guys uh, dig them like they were going to. Mm -hmm. So the studio crowd, they stood up on their feet and they just started booing so loud that they, you couldn't hear Carson. Video was playing, but you couldn't hear Carson. Bob Wharton Jr. was making a few comments, but uh, you know, for the next three minutes and while the video was playing, you couldn't even understand a single word the two of them were saying, except occasionally either Wharton or Carson would scream, shut up at the <laughs> crowd, right? <laughs> and they, you know, that was just making it worse. So, so the studio crowd had decided they was going to do the talking, by golly. And, uh, <laughs> so, and, and nobody was enjoying that more than Carson Stomper and Orton, man. <laughs> they were like, wow, we got them, man. I'd rarely seen that kind of TV ever in a TV studio, that kind of heat. And where the fans were just going to take over. So the video finished and Carson and Stomper, they escorted Bob Orton Jr. to the ring. And uh, he was going to be in the first live match. And he, he got him a quick smash match. And they put the backbreaker on a pretty good, decent young worker, Ron Sexton, uh, that uh, was from Knoxville. And then on the end of it, Orton, as always, he dropped Ron Sexton on his head. He pinned him. And uh, they carried uh, another guy out of the studio. And the fans never stopped booing. During the whole match, they just booed everything. It like uh, they they were determined that we're going to rule this segment. When they left the ring, they went back to the set because they won the first interview. So it was Haystacks Calhoun Battle Royal Week. I think that's what we called it that week. All week, we had these $3,800 cash prizes to the winner each night for the Battle Royal. And Carson, when he could be heard, was screaming over the crowd about having done the match and he had already figured out that they were going to split his stomper and him and Bob Orton Jr., especially the stomper and Bob Orton Jr., because they're going to be in the ring. We're going to be teaming up against everybody else. They were going to be splitting $16,800 in cash at the end of the week. So, you know, and that $16,800 and 77 equals to about $73,000 in today's money. That's a bunch, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty good, pretty good payday for the week for those guys. So the studio crowd, man, by then they were pretty much exhausted. They had been constantly booing for probably seven, eight minutes. 
it was just a, a wild, wild way to start a TV. Well, there you go. Another Saturday afternoon TV show. Everybody in the mountains of Tennessee are sitting on the edge of the couch and the good times just keep rolling. That is an awesome opening for TV. All right. So I think we're at a good point. Let's take a break, Ron, and more of this story will continue. This studcast is back in a moment. Stay with us. The stud is amazing with the subjects that he chooses for Super Studcast. Number 38 was all about Southeastern Knoxville and its rise to success between 1974 and 1979. Fans loved his choice of subject, and he doubled up on deep dives into the history of territories. In Super Studcast number 39, he found the ultimate AWA historian, George Shire. And between the two of them, the AWA territory and Vern Gagne came to life again at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. They uncover things about the AWA that many fans had never heard. On Tuesday, March 30th, Ron will be at it again. This time with another great historian, Dave Berzinski, former office employee, referee, and manager of the Sheik of Big Time Wrestling out of Detroit, Ohio, and Toronto, Canada. Two more great territories now under the microscope. Get your one-of-a-kind wrestling history at tnstud.com com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three fantastic hours, only $2.99. Find out why they call it the best deal in wrestling. Hey, welcome back in another studcast. David Summers here with the Tennessee Stud, the storyteller, Ron Fuller. And this studcast is an exception to the rule. It is, this is one that is going to keep you hanging on until the last word. And we're about to get right back into it, but don't forget tnstud.com tnstud.com you got the stud store you got the photo gallery you got that dvd set that is absolutely historical check it out while you're hearing the stories being told at tnstud.com every stud cast every super stud cast right there as well all right i think it might be time for the second southeastern tv segment for saturday march 25th 1977 show am i writing in Oh, man, man, you are, man. You, you and old macaronis, man, keeping up, man. I'm really surprised. You are welcome. All right. Yeah. Well, he's surprising me, I got to admit. We're going to jump into that second segment. And uh, the second segment, uh, we're going to change. The atmosphere in that studio is going to change dramatically as soon as Bob Armstrong enters the building and goes to the ring. He's live match uh, in the second match. And the uh, Boy, the fans, I think they were so happy to see him. Afterward, uh, you know, he came to the set and he talked about his upcoming match. He got himself a quick win, as always. Uh, he went around the high-fiving those fans in the front row and as far back as he could reach. And the atmosphere had really changed between the first segment and that second one. And uh, he'd won the title from the Mongolian Stopper on March the 5th in Knoxville. And he lost it back uh, to the Stomper nine days later in Johnson City. And this was going to be his first return match since he lost the title. And he, boy, as I said, the attitude changed big time. Uh, the fans loved him, man. And they, he tore in the, the beginning of his interview. He, he, he said something about the three heels that had opened the show that day and how it took uh, three guys to beat Ronnie Garvin. And, uh, and how he was expecting, since he had seen what happened to Garvin and Garvin having to leave Southeastern, that now that he had his shot at the Southeastern belt, 
he was expecting on Friday night that he was going to see all three of them uh, after him. And he also plugged all the money that's going to be at stake at all these battle royals all around the southeast, and they're going to be going into Kentucky and different states, and, uh, you know, that he wanted to get his hands on some of it. And, uh, you know, he did the normal great Armstrong interview. Personality profile was next on there, and it was a live one, which meant that the studio audience could see as it was being done. And it was with the world-famous Haystack Calhoun. He truly was a world-famous wrestler. And this uh, profile, which Les really loved this, this type of profile, they always did a great job with these. It was exactly the format he preferred for the personality profile. It was basically talking about a wrestler's personality, his hobbies, his personal interests. And, uh, you know, and uh, Stax talked about a lot of things. And the fact that he had wrestled on five continents, uh, which there's not a lot of guys that can brag that, you know, he quickly uh, got the crowd on his side. Stax had a great personality and, you know, fans were really into his personality profile. And he had an awesome ring history. And he talked about the, some of the guys that he had beaten and uh, some of the places he had been. Uh, he, he really had an unbelievable life story, what he had. And, uh, you know, and within that five minutes, Les pulled out so much. I think it was one of the best personality profiles. It was really, really good. And at the end of the profile, he talked about Southeastern. He talked about having, this is his first time in this new wrestling company. He said, uh, you know, this wrestling company is the talk of the wrestling world. He goes, uh, you know, what's going on here is, is unbelievable. And he goes, wrestlers all over the world are talking about it. They're wanting to come here and they're wanting to wrestle, which is really great. I didn't buzz him to do any of that. He did that on his own, you know. And uh, he said, you know. I look forward to meeting everybody in the cities that I'm going to wrestle in this week. One of them I'm going to be in tonight, he says, I've heard a lot about, like all wrestlers, is Harlan, Kentucky. And he goes, it's going to be my first time there. I want all the fans to come and see me. And what he did every night and every time was amazing. He spent probably uh, at least 30, 40 minutes with the fans. Just oh. He was mobbed. He was mobbed by fans. They loved him. So the third segment of the show began with another interview from the NWA world champion, Harley Race. In this one, Harley again kind of mentioned me, and he mentioned Bob Armstrong as potential challengers, but he spent most of the time in this one pointing that finger at the former world champion, Terry Funk, as the man that was going to be most likely to get the shot against him on Thursday, April 27, 1977. He said the main reason that Terry's probably going to get the shot is that because they had not had a rematch yet. And uh, that was always the case. When you lost the title, you got a rematch. And he said there had been no rematch yet. And because it had been a great deal of time between now and then, and this April 27th date is coming so soon, it appears he says, I'm going to be wrestling fun to give him a shot to win his belt back in Knoxville, Tennessee. So, as always, Harley finished with uh, the fact that it didn't make any difference to him who the hell got the match, you know, you know, because he was uh, he was the toughest sob on God's screen earth. You know, he had his line, and he sure got it in on the end of every one of his interviews. Yeah, yeah. 
the next match was a most unusual event for TV. It was a 10-man over-the-top rope battle royal, and Haystacks was in it. So, uh, you know, the prize money for this royal was not 3800 This was 2000 because it didn't have as many guys in it. And the match was going to take place, obviously, during the two last segments of the show because it's a battle royal. It could last 20, 30 minutes. You know, even going short, it would be 10 or 15 minutes. So we had to set aside the last two segments of the show for this battle roar. And the way we did it is uh, we were going to show a commercial break after that time gone. And, but we were going to save the third and the last interviews of the show to be done after the battle roar was over. So Phil Rainey, who was the ring announcer at not only uh, the television, but the Coliseum as well, he introduced the contestants for the battle roar one by one as they entered the ring. He introduced Robert Fuller, Jimmy Golden, Dave Steinborn, Rip Smith, Mike Stalling, the Mongolian Stomper, Norvell Austin, and Kurt Carl Von Steiger, and then Haystack Calhoun. Wow. Those old television rings, they were short and small, 16-foot <laughs> rings. And I'll tell you what, there wasn't much room in there for anybody to move around, especially when Stacks got in there. There really wasn't much room left. So the studio crowd was just lit up by this, man, by seeing this kind of match on TV. And I'm sure everybody at home watching was pretty excited about it as well. And in the third segment of the show, uh, which was the first part of this battle royal, Mike Stallings, Norvell Austin, and Rip Smith, they were eliminated. They were thrown over the top rope and out of it. Then they came to the two-minute commercial break that we had to take for the television stations. And uh, as soon as they came out of that two-minute break, the action was still going on. The Stomper and uh, both the Von Steiger brothers started working together about this point, and they started eliminating the remaining three baby faces. They threw out Dick Steinborn. They worked together. They'd get stacks kind of down on his knees, whatever, and they'd pick one guy, and they'd go for him. They threw out Steinborn, then they threw out Jimmy Golden, then they threw out my brother, Rob. Okay. And, uh, and it left now the three hills in there with Haystacks. Oh. It was pretty interesting at this point. So, you know, and Haystacks was really good at these battle roars. You know, he'd been in thousands of these. Everywhere he went, they wanted to put him in battle roars a lot of times. So all three of those guys jumped him, man. But, boy, he fought back. And he snatched a carbine Steiger, and he, he sent him over the ropes. I don't know if Steiger touched the ropes as he went over onto the floor. <laughs> I mean, I, I never seen a guy sail like that. It was, it was like, wow, <laughs> look at that. And uh, about the time he sailed him over the ropes, he turned around, and Stomper was ready for him. Stomper kicked him in the stomach with that big old size 16 foot he had, and, uh, and Stacks went down. And when he did, uh, Kurt Von Steiger, you know, Grabbed the hold of his the big man's legs. He had him on his back, and Stomper did his thing, man. He ran to the ropes three or four times and stomped old Stacks in the face. And wasn't long to Haystacks was getting bloody. Uh. He was beginning to bleed. You know, and I don't know how much that happened to Stacks, but it happened to him then. So Stacks started his comeback, you know, bloody and everything, man. And he he grabbed uh, Kurt. He'd already sailed his brother over, and he did the same thing to Kurt. Man, he, I don't know. Kurt touched the top rope. He just went over just like his brother did. And then Stax went after the stomper. 
But about the time he went for him, the referee got in the way and he got kind of squashed in the corner. Uh-oh. He went down. So Stomper forced Stacks back into the corner and he started trying to lift him by himself over the top rope. But the two Von Steigers were still out there in the studio and obviously Don Carson had been at the ringside the whole time. So now the referee's down. Uh, Stomper's got Stacks into the corner. And uh, all three of those guys jumped up on the apron and they grabbed a body part and they managed to get that big boy over the top rope before the referee got up. So when the referee got up, the only guy left in the ring is the stomper. So the ref rings the bell and he raises the stomper's hand. You know, he didn't see exactly how the stacks got out of there, but uh, didn't make any difference at that point. So after the last commercial break of the show, both the baby faces and heels are separated off in two different studios, and they each got two minutes to talk about what was going to happen uh, next Friday night in Knoxville and during the course of the week. In Studio B, I call it Studio B, with Don Carson, the Stomper, Bob Warden Jr., the Von Steiger brothers, and Norvell Austin, and they were celebrating. Don had the money. They paid him in cash immediately. Uh, gave the money to Don because his man had won. And Don had a handful of cash, and he, boy, they were all around him, patting him on the back. And, uh, you know, they had won. The Stomper had won the first battle roar of the week. And uh, he'd already, Carson early in the program, predicted how much money they were going to break in during the course of the week. So that was their basic interview. And and, and then at the set with Les was uh, Bob Armstrong, myself, Robert. Uh, Jimmy Golan, Dick Steinborn, Rip Smith, and uh, Haystacks at Calhoun, who was still bleeding. And uh, Stacks kind of sat in a chair as best he could. You know, two chairs would have been better, but he had one that he could fit himself into. He did most of the talking in the interview. We didn't really step on his toes. He was kind of the star for the week there. And he made a great interview, man, uh, about finding out early in the week you know, he said, uh, I'm really happy that I found out this early in the week what to expect from those guys over there the rest of the week. I see what's going on now, how this is going to go down, basically. He said it wasn't the first time he'd bled, and he said it probably ain't going to be the last. But he said, I got, I'm not going to have any bleeding going on during the course of this week. And he, he pretty much guaranteed that there's going any bleeding going on from this point was going to be by the fellows over there in the other dressing room. And that his battle royal was his, that was his thing. And that he was going to win these battle royals. And he was more determined than ever now after what had happened to him uh, to make that happen. And he said, uh, you know, he was, he was looking forward to wrestling in the state of Kentucky this week, in West Virginia this week, and in the state of Tennessee. And the crowd popped. And, uh, boy, all of us slapped those stacks on the back, and we wished him luck, including no less at the end of the interview. And uh, <laughs> it turned out to be a great TV show. Oh, absolutely a great TV show. And, and listen, you got folks sitting at home that are going, I can't believe they're putting this main event on TV, and we're watching this from home for free. So, obviously, Ron, I mean, that's just a smart move right there you're kind of baiting those fans. So you make sure they buy tickets. I know that's right. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, I mean, uh, 
I don't know that they did this in in many other places, and I doubt they did. They, you know, you know, you normally don't want to put your main event on TV, right? But, but I was always determined as a promoter that I wanted to give my fans things that they had never seen, and to give them a battle royal on TV, I knew it was going to rock it, and I knew they were all going to tell all their friends about it. They yeah. go, "Did you watch wrestling yeah. last week? They had a battle royal on TV." And That's then, where you build audience. Yeah, and then you get the little thing called the ratings, which, of course, it turns into revenue. So the TV station was loving this, too. Yes, they were benefiting awesome. from it just like we were, man, for sure. Yeah, no doubt. All right, so what about the results of cards uh, six nights later in Knoxville and, and the attendance of, of that show? Well, Mike Stallings and Rip Smith, they, they had a tremendous babyface match. They, they had a 20-minute time limit draw, and... Uh, and what was really remarkable, and I keep saying this, so when I have these young guys that have these baby face matches early in the night, they got a standing ovation from 5,000 plus people, you know, for 4,000 because we were in Chihuahua Park. It would have been 5,000, I'm sure, if we'd have been in the Coliseum, but Park didn't hold that many. But everybody in that building gave those two boys a standing ovation. I really love to see that. Uh, Dick Steinborn, he lost to Novella. Uh, Jimmy Golden and Bob Wharton Jr., they wrestled to a 30-minute time limit draw. But it wasn't like that first match. Boy, it was a hard-fought match, man. Uh, Bob Wharton Jr. was a tremendous wrestler. And Jimmy was in his heyday. He was really good, too. I watched it. It was so good, I decided I'm going to bring that match back next week. I got to put these guys in a return match. But Rob and I, we won the Southeastern Championship match, but we won by disqualification over the Von Tigers, and obviously we couldn't become champions that way. Bob Armstrong, in his match with a stomper, it went just the opposite direction. Bob got so mad and so carried away, he got disqualified, and the stomper's hand got raised by disqualification. So uh, Haystacks won that Knoxville battle royal, though, and I think that really made the fans happy to see Stacks win that one. He didn't win all of the entire week's battle royals, but he did win the one in Knoxville, and I think he won one other. Uh, the matches uh, were in Chihuahua Park, uh, as far as the attendance is concerned, and and obviously it was a cold night that night, and we didn't have any choice to put it inside the indoor building. It would have been horrible in the amphitheater. It had to have an overcoat on to sit and watch wrestling, and that's not good. So the ticket sales were cut off 15 minutes before the bell was rang because we were already, that building was already full, 4,000 fans. And they wouldn't let us put any more people in there than that. So for the week, we sold 19,700 tickets at an average price of $3 each for six battle royals. Almost 20,000 fans. Wow. If you did that every week for a year, they would be a million people in a year. Oh, no doubt. But w- what kind of money did you have to invest for, for Haystacks to be there and hang out with you guys that long? Oh, well, yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't a cheap week, you know. But, uh, gosh, uh, when you had a week like that, that 19,700 fans grossed yeah. almost $60,000. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? So, uh, wow. Everybody made money. Everybody made good money that week. Uh, oh, what a yeah. great week it was. 
All right, I'm telling you, Ron, no wonder that new fans are finding these studcasts every week. Every one of them now is remarkable wrestling history, no doubt about it. All right, time to get that cold drink. We'll take a seat under the learning tree. Hopefully, the bird of paradise not sitting above our heads. Remind us once again, set this thing up for us. Who was the one that asked the question? What was the question once again? All right, this question came from a gentleman named Eddie Wright, and he asked, since you are in 1977, and it was the split year between the other two territories in the state, Jerry Jarrett in Memphis and Nick Goulas in Nashville, did it have any impact on your promotion? Uh, a very a great question, you know. I mean, uh, you've got basically three major promotions in one state. Uh, we're on the east side. Uh, Goulas is in the middle of the state, and, and Jarrett's on the far west. And two of those territories are going to go and have a little war here to see who's going to maybe uh, own both of them. It doesn't quite go that way, but uh, that's the way the picture was in 1977. So, uh, and a great question, Eddie. Uh, thank you very much for asking it. And this split and the subsequent war between these two wrestling offices run out of Nashville was, as I mentioned earlier, a result of a, uh, my grandfather Roy's retirement. Uh, he was the main guy responsible for all Tennessee wrestling, and not just all Tennessee wrestling, for a lot of the states in the South having professional wrestling from the early 30s all the way to 1977. So basically for 47 years, he was, he was right there. He was the man. And he basically had two partners, both of which learned everything they knew about wrestling from Roy. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's a simple deal as that. You know, and Nick Goulas, he, came, he became a partner of Roy in the 1940s. And Jerry Jarrett didn't come along until the late 1960s. Now, Roy's Tennessee territory in the latter days was split kind of down the middle. The eastern side of the state, from Nashville over to Chattanooga, uh, that was one of their towns. Basically, it was Chattanooga, Nashville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, Alabama. You know, and uh, on the west side, you had uh, Memphis, and uh, that Memphis territory was Louisville, Kentucky, and Evansville, Indiana, uh, Lexington, Kentucky. So this state, uh, the Kentucky and Tennessee, is kind of split there. And then on the far eastern side was southeastern and us. So, uh, you know, the eastern side of the state. Uh, was Nick Goulas, the western side of the state, was Jerry Lawler. And uh, these two territories, they even had their own wrestlers. They did not share talent. They, they were totally pretty much separate for many years. Uh, and everything, the peace was maintained between the two of them. There was no love lost between Nick Goulas and Jerry Jarrett, I can tell you that. And uh, after Roy was gone and his retirement, by golly, in 1977, the war was on between them. And, you know, I'm in no way a historian about these two territories. I'm very well uh, right up front. I will admit that. I only worked for Nick Goulas a few times in my career. Maybe only as many as 10 times in my entire career. I worked for Jerry Jarrett almost the entire year of 1975 on top as his Southern Heavyweight Champion. And uh, many times in Memphis and Louisville, Kentucky during 75 and for years afterward. And, and I'm saying this because... It had an effect on my dealings with these two guys, and it leads to the answer for the question that, that the guy asked Mr. Wright. Mr. Quite Wright's question was, 
Did the split between the two have any impact in Knoxville? Well, a quick answer, uh, Eddie, is, uh, is no. No, we were doing so well in Southeastern without using hardly any wrestlers from either of those two companies, or any company for that matter. We had our own thing going, and we were making it happen. And what was happening in other parts of the state's wrestling, it had absolutely no impact on us. So uh, there were no crossover of television stations, which happened in some territories in which one territory had a station and his program was on in your area and your show was on in his area. That was not the case in Tennessee. There was no crossover of television stations. There was no problem between me or either of the other two guys. But I had a better, honestly, I had a better relationship with Jerry Jarrett than I had with Nick. Uh, Jerry and I had swapped top, top guys on, on occasion for early cards. When, when I started in 1975, occasionally he would send me Jerry Lawler and he would send me Bill Dundee and he would send me Tommy Rich. And, uh, you know, uh, so I was getting some talent and I was sending him some guys. So in this current month of April 1977, I'm going to send him to Bon Steigers and Bob Armstrong on a Monday for one wow. of his cards in April, you know, and they're going to go over there and defend the Southeastern belt in his territory. And the Von Steigers, the Von Steigers are going to even lose the Southeastern belts to Bill Dundee and Tommy Rich in Memphis on mm. Monday, April 24th, 1977. Wow. And then three days later on the Harley race world title night, the Steigers are going to win back the Southeastern belts from Tommy Rich and Bill Dundee. On that same night, uh, Harley Race night in 77, Bob Armstrong is going to win Jerry Jarrett's Southern Heavyweight title from Jerry Lawler. And then he's going to fly to Memphis three days later, and he'll lose that belt back to Lawler <laughs> on a big sold-out Memphis card. Give a little, take a little. That's right. There you go. And I mean, what was happening was wonderful. It was the way business should have been handled between a lot of territories. And that type of swap between, you know, that turned the big cards, when you added these extra belts on these cards, it turned a big card into a mega card. It added a bunch of meaningful matches, and it introduced more belts at stake than fans had seen before. They're like, wow, this card's got seven championships on it, or whatever it may be. It also gave fans the thrill of seeing those titles won when they least expected it. You don't want to have six championship matches on a big card like a Harley race card. A Harley's not going to get beat. You yeah. sure don't want to have fans go home and nobody loses their championship. On the Harley race night, I believe four different titles ain't changed hands that night. Oh, so that's yeah. what made it so good. That's what made uh, business uh, just uh, explode. So it really worked for Nick. It really worked for you. And man, that's that you're you're right. I mean, when you two guys are working together that way, then then everybody wins. Man, another very interesting learning tree, Ron, and another great stud cast. No doubt about it. On Facebook, you can become friends with a legend on Facebook by simply liking and following Ron on either or both the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page or the author Ron Fuller Welch page, Twitter and Instagram. Look for Ron Fuller Welch. Don't miss the new super stud cast number 39, all about the AWA territory 
with historian George Shire. And part two, coming on Tuesday, March 30th, will cover another great territory of the sheiks in Detroit, Toronto, and Ohio with another famous historian of that territory, Dave Berzinski. Three hours and only two ninety nine at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. It is the best deal in wrestling. And the fantastic Southeastern Continental Old School DVDs, still the hottest set of five DVDs ever that cover at least five years of some of the greatest wrestlers and wrestling on the planet from 1982 to 1987. Get it now at tnstud.com. Click on Stud Store. Only $39.99. It's going to make an incredible gift for somebody. It includes free shipping, 12 hours, 60 matches, many interviews with some of the greatest wrestlers in those hugely successful territories. Brutus awaits those that want to discover the dark side with Ron. This novel is breaking records, and many believe it will become a movie one day. Get your book now before the movie at Amazon.com. Brutus Novel, B-R-U-T-U-S, Brutus Novel at Amazon.com. Or the special autograph copy at TNStud.com. Click on Stud Store. All right, awesome job this week. So we want to know what's up next week, Ron. Well, we're only four weeks, Dave, from the NWA World Championship match with Harley Race, winning his title in Knoxville. Next week's today's training, we're going to wear those Booker hats again. And, and I'm going to begin to point fans in the direction of who was most likely going to get that title shot on the last event in April of 1977. Uh, we're going to focus on another tremendous. Uh, April 1977 card, April 7th to be exact. Uh, it's going to be back in the Coliseum, this one, not in Chihuahua Park. And we're going to be in the Coliseum for nine straight weeks in a row uh, after this one. So we're going to discuss the TV and the attendance of that uh, date. And uh, the learning tree has a question about, and this is a great one too, a fan asked, and uh, I'll be telling his name next week, but. Uh, he asked, is it true that Jerry Lawler won the Southeastern title and refused to defend it after winning it? Oh. So we're going to answer that one. And, uh, you know, I want to thank all the all the stud cast and the patrons of the Super Stud cast for the exploding interest, man. And both of, both of my stud cast, I really appreciate it. And we've grown just tr tremendously in the last three months, and our audience is just just exploding and uh, you know please take care of yourself out there everybody and others and uh, may god bless us all hey god bless you too ron thanks so much an awesome time and this is david summers thanking you for riding with us again today and reminding you that ron fuller's studcast is a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast the true story continues next week so full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.